Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Enterprise Linux Security. This is episode number six. I'm joined, as always, with Zhao. How are you today? All good, Jay. Thanks for having me again. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Likewise. So we have um, kind of a pivot today because I, I kind of felt like this might happen. I guess we'll see where we have a main topic, but there's, there's going to be some things to talk about before we get to the main topic. I think that's going to keep happening every now and then, if not always, because, you know, there's always these security events that we should talk about that may not last the whole episode. So we have our main topic, which today is going to be building a secure, I don't actually kind of want to say secure image because that implies that it's always or like it's perfectly secure, but having an image for distribution for your operating system or your Linux systems that has, I, I want to say more safer defaults. I'm trying to avoid using the word best practice. I'm trying to train mm -hmm. myself on that. It's really hard because I feel like best practice implies that everything's already the best, and that's never the case. And best practice is very dependent on your context and your situation. It's, it's hardly yep. ever going to be exactly the same in two different places. So right. calling it best practices might be a misnomer most of the time. Yeah, so the idea is to have uh, better defaults in your image before you start spinning up servers. Some, you know, things that you want to have in the image as far as settings or maybe things you're taking away just to kind of make it uh, better at the beginning. But before we get to that, the uh, smaller topics, but, but you know, not smaller in importance, but you know, <laughs> smaller in um, how much time it's going to talk how, take to talk about them, we have the Let's Encrypt root certificate issue, or expiration, rather, and the uh, Facebook outage, which we also need to address because that's the elephant yeah. in the room. And so, the very big elephant at that. The biggest one. Yeah, they're their own mm -hmm. registrar. That's how big of an elephant they are. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that. So <clears throat> let's talk about Let's Encrypt. So for anyone who doesn't already know, um, Let's Encrypt is a way, um, I'm just oversimplifying this to secure, <coughs> excuse me, to secure your servers with an, a TLS certificate. And it's a bit different than buying a certificate that generally lasts a year. They last three months by default. It allows, you know, pretty much every server operator to have a, a certificate. And the whole goal is to, you know, let's encrypt, let's everyone encrypt all the things. That's what it's all about. So Let's Encrypt is used in all kinds of things from, you know, servers in the home lab to the enterprise, um, Internet of Things devices, phones. I mean, it, it's, I think they, was it one or two billion um, certificates they were saying, um, I'm trying to remember the numbers, but some crazy number of certificates were created with Let's Encrypt. I don't know the, the actual numbers, but by issuance, they are by far the largest uh, provider of certificates on the world. So yeah, anything that impacts them is going to have a very, very far-reaching impact. And another thing is the scripts they provide for you to, to renew your certificates automatically, they are very handy and they're very easy to deploy. So people use it, they're just, they're just handy. When you have a certificate that needs to be renewed every three months, nobody wants to do that by hand. Yep. And so if you have this handy script running that will pull you pull a new certificate, deploy it on Apache or whatever, and reload it, that's great. You don't have to worry about it, and you'll still be protected. So yep. yeah, it's a great way to, to have certificates. Highly yeah. recommended. Yeah, I highly recommend it too. It, it's just, 
Nowadays, we really don't have any excuse. I don't think we've had an excuse for a long time not to encrypt, but we really don't have an excuse now because it's never been easier to get. Plain text communication should have been thrown out with the, with the trash a long time ago. Yep. It's so very easy to snoop. So the I, my understanding is that the issue with this Let's Encrypt thing is that the root certificate expired, which if your client has been updated, that's not a problem. And the root certificate that they're using now has been around for a bit, but all root certificates expire eventually. And if you're on a current system or device, it's probably not an issue for you. But if you have something older or something that doesn't regularly get updated, then it could actually break. Okay, so uh, the thing here is that one of their uh, root certificates, they have more than one, one of their root certificates uh, was set to expire at the start of this month, I believe, um, or the last day of September. Um, but the thing is, it never got removed from the certificate chain. So it's still in systems that have not been updated, it's still there. It's sold, it will fail validation, but it's still there and it's expired. Now, what happens is that this by itself should not be an issue because the certificates that were emitted by him have a different validation pass that is still valid on another root certificate of theirs. So it's still possible to validate those certificates. What happened is that by coupling this expired certificate with the behavior that OpenSSL had a few versions ago, where when trying to validate the certificate, it would go up the chain and when it found one certificate that was expired, it would completely fail the validation. Causes this causes several issues on older systems. Newer versions of OpenSSL perform slightly different. They will try different validation paths if they find some path that is that is that has an expired certificate there. They will try to find a different validation path, and it will succeed because a different one exists. When systems like say CentOS six that no longer have updates have this type of certificates deployed and they find an expired certificate there because they are using older OpenSSL, all types of encrypted communications will fail. Ironically, Let's Encrypt own client that would fix the problem by getting new certificates will also fail the communication to Let's Encrypt servers because of this. So you're left with the, this very unpleasant situation where your system is no longer supported, you no longer have updates and you need an update to fix the problem. So there are already instructions around on how to perform it manually, on how to go to the certificate chain that you have deployed on your system and manually find the expired certificate and remove it from there. And from then on, it could start to work again. But uh, it's the kind of things that you face when you're running systems that are past their end of life. And we've talked about this before, people should upgrade to newer system versions or they should find some type of service and I'm going to shamelessly plug extended lifecycle support here by TechScare. We provide updates for that. Again, ironically, we were also hit by this. So we also had to provide instructions for some of our customers to get around this so that they could continue to receive the, the, the updates. But you're in a much better position than if you have no support and no one to help you at all when something like this breaks. Yeah, it's good to have options. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're not just you know left high and dry. You have a, a possible path to get this yeah. fixed. And I, I've read some articles where they're just saying that some administrators out there, big surprise. Um, I don't know if they use the word administrator, but people, you know, they they get this the certificate installed and they deploy their solution, and they move on, right? But they don't 
you know, remember to check the expiration date on things. And, um, you know, Let's Encrypt, as we discussed, will automatically renew via the uh, background process that runs. It checks periodically for, a, um, you know, if it's about to expire, it renews it. But that's the certificate on the server. That's not the root certificate. There's yeah, um, yeah, another yeah. process for that. So Exactly, exactly. Yeah. This is this is in line with another change that happened a year or two ago, where the maximum the maximum validity date that you can get on a certificate right now is one year. When you have an organization that has hundreds of certificates deployed across different systems and across uh, Apache and the uh, Internet Information Services from Microsoft and Exchange or lots of different ser services use certificates. When you have hundreds of certificates or thousands of certificates deployed and you don't have an automatic way of processing this, you're going to have people that are fully fully busy all the time just renewing certificates. That's one of the reasons why Let's Encrypt automatic renewal process is so, so interesting for sysadmins. You don't have to worry about that again, and that's great. Any solution that automates a repetitive task, it's a great solution for system administrators. And yeah. this change that happened that limits the, the validity of certificates. And this was introduced to make sure that certificates from a CA that got hacked would be able to, to be invalidated sooner rather than only two or three years after yeah. this is done. Um, but this really messed up the schedule on many organizations because this is almost a full-time job just keeping up with the certificate renewals. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, some companies out there, the smaller ones, might just have a few servers. There might be companies that have thousands of them. Um, yeah. And another thing that Let's Encrypt has done that I don't know if um, how how many people realize this, but they offer wildcard certificates now too. Which, uh, depending on how you set this up, it, it may be a benefit to you or not. But you know, generally speaking, beforehand you had you know yourdomain.com, so you can get mm -hmm. a Let's Encrypt cert for that. Then you have server1.yourdomain.com, server2.yourdomain.com, and you can get a, you can have Let's Encrypt get a certificate for those, and it renews those. Or you could get a, now, you know, since they released this feature, I don't remember when they did this, you can get a wildcard cert, so you just have, you know, yourdomain.com, maybe put that in a proxy or something ahead of things, and then um, that wildcard cert could be, you know, your one, your one thing that needs to be renewed and one thing to focus on. Whether or not that's a good or bad idea, Depends on how your infrastructure is set up. I'll leave yeah. it up to you guys, but just know that that is available. But um, if you don't keep the client updated and worse, you're on an older operating system that doesn't even get updated at all, then this is going to be a pain point, things like this. Exactly. And those, uh, those star uh, certificates, the one that can validate multiple subdomains, those are really great. And if you're not using Let's Encrypt, those are also very expensive. From the, the CAs that actually provide them to end users, those are probably the most expensive ones they have. Those yeah. and the extended validation type ones are probably the most expensive certificates that you can get. And uh, getting basically one of those will invalidate the need for any of the others because you can use that anywhere. As long as it's a subdomain of the main domain that you have, you can always use that uh, certificate and it will always validate. Yeah, I, I actually looked into this at one point before they had this feature for Learn Linux TV. I was thinking about getting a wildcard uh, certificate 
And then I looked up at you know the price, and I'm and I'm like, uh, sorry, I asked. Yeah. <laughs> they only had like maybe three or four subdomains, so yeah. it was way cheaper just to buy individual certs for those yeah. than to just get the wildcard. Then Let's Encrypt came around, so I don't really care anymore. But um, I almost wonder if some of these companies that are making money off of certificates are really upset about Let's Encrypt. I'd have to imagine. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine so. And that is probably the reason why many organizations still have hundreds of different certificates rather than just the, the wildcard one. Yep. It's the so cost. I, I think the key takeaway here is use Let's Encrypt and don't use expired operating systems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go a long way with those two uh, points of advice there. But um, it's something that happens, so we're definitely going to talk about it. Um, now, Facebook being out. Now, this is interesting to me because I think, and we were talking before we hit the record button, that I think this really illustrates that there's no such thing as a perfect admin or a perfect IT team. I don't care how technical your company is. People make mistakes and things happen. Now, Facebook, without getting into too much detail, they have a lot of interesting things in their infrastructure, how they've, you know, custom, they've done some custom things to really make things work for them that are, you know, some, if you look up articles about Facebook and how they, um, any, anytime you can get information about how they do their internal infrastructure, it's pretty interesting. So for a company to um, be defeated by BGP and DNS, um, <laughs> you know, like Facebook, I mean, that's like, wow, okay, I didn't see that one coming. I know it it's bound to happen, but again, people make mistakes. So to really um, summarize this a bit before we get into the meat of this discussion, um, we have BGP, um, Border Gateway Protocol, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea is that you you have like, if you have one switch, I mean, it's easy to configure that. But if you have a bunch of them or you have a network of switches, a switch connected to a switch and things connected to other things, you have routes that tell you know, basically the IP protocol, how to get from point A to point B. And if you have thousands of router switches or whatever you have, um, nobody wants, and this is the key thing here in IT, nobody wants to go through thousands of devices or more and hand, um, you know, basically so hand code them. And the more you're doing by hand, if you're configuring thousands of devices, the more the likelihood of human error creeps in, which still crept in here. We'll get to that in a minute. But you could create this, um, it's the system, BGP is a system where you could send the updates out and it advertises the routes to other things. So you only have to make that once. The problem is if you um, upload some configuration that's incorrect once, then everything is gonna fall down. And then to add insult to injury, Facebook is actually their own registrar for their domain. So um, DNS for them is a little bit more interesting. Originally, when this went down, a lot of people thought it was a DNS issue. But um, another individual that I listened to, Steve Gibson, mentioned, and I agree in his podcast, he said that, um, and this is true, if it was a just a DNS issue, the time to live would make the problem happen later, not now. Because the time to live in DNS is how long that um, cached record is good for. I thought I heard seven days. Don't quote me on that. But if it was seven days, the time to live last seven days would be seven days later. But this problem happened pretty much immediately to the point where Facebook was locked out of their building and couldn't even get in, um, which I've experienced once. I, I, <laughs> I might have mentioned it on this podcast when I mentioned this Windows 98 laptop at a previous company that had a hard drive failure and nobody could get in to the building and everybody was standing outside. So that 
scene in my memory was playing back when I heard this about Facebook. I know I'm laughing, but it's not funny because, you know, this is a stressful day at work for, for these administrators. Yeah, They're not laughing at all. So, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, BGP lets you do, and this is funny. I saw this explanation. Someone on Twitter was asking, okay, explain BGP to me like, I, like if I was a five year old child. And somebody replied to him, okay, imagine you have Alice, Bob, Charlie, and Danielle or something. And you want to send something from Alice to Danielle. But Alice does not know where Danielle is. So she asks Bob and Charlie, okay, do you know Danielle? And Charlie says so. I can pass it along to her. So you send it to, to Charlie, and Charlie sends it all the way to, to Daniel. And that's basically what BGP does, but with routers. Mm -hmm. Okay, One router asks another, okay, do you know how to reach this IP address block? And the, the router will either say, okay, I don't know, or I know another router that does. And this propagates. Okay, If you do a trace route from your computer to an IP address, you'll, so, you'll see all the routers that it goes through. And those will not be on the same network. They may or may not be on the same network, but usually they're not. And they're not even controlled by the same organization. They're not even in the same country as each other. And basically what happened at Facebook, from what people could gather from the outside, was that some configuration, one of their routers started to announce either the wrong routes or started or stopped announcing their own routes altogether. Mm -hmm. So basically they lost internet connectivity. And when you're at Facebook and you have data centers all over the world, that gets nasty really fast. And people were locked out of Facebook and for the ones for who's that who that matters, they were pretty pissed up about it. Um, yeah. yeah, it and wasn't it kinda, a very pleasant day for them. No, no, no. It kind of challenges the definition of down because you know if if anybody can't get to a thing, it's down, right? It doesn't matter what's actually happening. I can't reach the site; it's down. Um, my understanding is Facebook never went down. The servers never went down. It's just you can't get to them, right? There's no road to get there. It's like you're going to the store, you plan to go to the store to get groceries, but you find out you can't because all the roads are gone and you can't actually drive there. Uh, it's not like the, the store doesn't exist. It does. You just can't get to it. So that the issue is exa exactly that. It's, it's no router because that's where this is. That's where this is. It's in the router because routers route. Routers don't know how to route to Facebook anymore. So yeah. if you're requesting Facebook in your browser, um, you can't because it doesn't know how to get there anymore. Yeah. And I saw Wendell from Level and Text mentioned this on their news episode that just came out today. So shout out to, the, to him. Mm -hmm. There was an interesting thing that happened. And now that you mentioned that the servers were never done, they were never done, but they weren't doing anything. Uh, right. So they were consuming very low power. And then this is something that, that is very unusual to have happened. So basically, all their servers were on, they were powered on, but they weren't actually doing nothing. CPU was at zero usage. So they weren't consuming too much power. They were probably on a low power state uh, because you want to conserve power if your servers are not doing something, especially at scale when you have thousands and, and thousands of servers. <laughs> the guys at Facebook were actually worried that when they fix the problem, the initial spike of usage from everybody logging in at the same time will make their power circuit breakers actually fire because it would be so high the spike that they were afraid that the, the electrical infrastructure would not hold it. And this just shows 
wow. the amount of people that they had to get in that room to reach that conclusion. Because the IT people usually do not concern themselves overly with this. They had to have the electrical engineering team also there. They basically had everybody working to solve this problem. And it was pretty wow. interesting to, to, know, to be aware of this fact because it's something that's really relevant when your whole data center is in low power and all of a sudden you get a spike to full power because all the servers would be at 100% immediately as soon as people started to be able to reach it. The power usage would be a, an issue and they were afraid that the, the electrical things that they have were not going to be able to hold it. So yeah, and just goes to show the, the scale that we're talking about yeah, here. This exactly. is amazing, it's mind blowing. It is mind blowing, and and this is something that I think about every now and then. That I don't think, you know, even before this, because you know, sometimes you have this weird shower thought, like you just think of something, like why did I just think of that? And you know, and one of the things I thought about was, um, you have all these companies out there that are, you know, eight to five. They're not a twenty-four by seven operation. Um, you know, they're just completely closed after five o'clock or whatever their hours are. But they leave their servers on 24-7. Now, obviously, if you have a website where people need to get to all the time, that makes sense. But if, if you don't, um, and I know most companies, especially the bigger ones, they're 24 by 7 operation that can't go down. But I sometimes wonder if all the companies out there that are not 24 by 7 make their servers shut down when they, you know, of course, are done for the day and they're not using electricity, how much of a global change that would be. Obviously, there's an argument here to be made about um, the health of the servers because they're meant to be on all the time. And if you are turning them on or, you know, wake on LAN or via IPMI in the morning, um, it's a surge of electricity through the chassis to turn it on, which you could argue is going to wear out the life of the server. But if you take that out of the equation, though, um, you know, we're using, I think a lot of companies are using power that they don't need in Facebook. You know, this is not even that that's their usage it's not even like they could sh i mean maybe if they're auto scaling they might be able to shut some things down but that's a lot of use that is insane i almost yeah. think that netflix might be the only other company i could think of off the top of my head that could have an effect like that probably amazon as well yep um, the major cloud providers all of them will probably have that impact but the, the the amazing thing here is that because they want to be so power efficient with their equipment they wanted to consume as low power as possible when it's not doing anything. The difference here between a low power state and the full use state, it's so high, so high, that even if your your electrical infrastructure is prepared to deal with it, being at power, at, at full power all the time, the spike when going from one state to the other, because it's so instant, and circuit breakers are supposed to act like that. If they detect the spike, they want to prevent a, a a short circuit somewhere, so they will fire. So the thing here is that they were afraid that it would trigger that. And the difference is so high between the low power state and the high, again, mind-blowing, completely mind-blowing, this this part. It really is. And this is something I, I, I think most administrators see to an extent, maybe not on that level, at some point in their career, because I've seen and this has happened many times with clients where you know they call in and they're like, our, our stuff is down. And then um, long story made short, we fixed the problem, but it's still, then they email back, it's still down. What do you mean it's fixed? No, trust me, it's fixed. But you have so many users that, you know, have these pending requests and yeah. 
you might have build systems, CI, CD, exactly. or something that has all these things running. They're checking out code. So someone had a um, a Git server that went down, and when it was brought back up, the number of build jobs that was really trying hard to get to it meant that no user could even load the UI until um, those started to catch up, and then it came back online. So sometimes, and this is how you know you're a seasoned administrator, because when you're starting out, when you think of the systems are back online, that's that's a good thing. That's 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 everything you want. You want it to come back, but sometimes coming back up is a bad thing, actually. And it's hard to sometimes it can be harder to deal with things coming back online than it is for them to be down in the first place. Especially if you're powering on lots of different servers at once, because the initial spike on power on is higher than regular usage normally. But here they were already on, and still they were afraid of the, the difference there. I found that amazing. really did. And yeah. the other thing that's really interesting about this issue and how Facebook dealt with it, at some point, someone from Facebook engineering team posted something on Twitter to the effect that, OK, we've identified the problem. But the people with physical access to the routers that we need to, to affect the changes on are not the people with the actual credentials to log into those routers, and they're not the people with the actual knowledge to implement the changes. So we're trying to get everybody together in the same place so that we can fix it, the issue. It, it goes to show that too much segregation, too much separation, actually too, many too much security, if that's even a thing, can get yep. in the way of you actually getting your job done. And we're all, always advocating for stricter security measures and all that. But there is this fine, li fine line that you need to, to walk to make sure that you can still operate. You need security. Yeah. You need security at all levels. But you still need to be able to operate. People still need to be able to do their jobs. And if you're just adding security on top of security on top of security, at some point, it's going to be irrelevant whatever security you have there, because people won't be able to do anything at all with the system. Right. So. There is this this fine line that you need to, to walk, this this nar very narrow path that you need to find for your specific use case where you have enough security to actually protect your assets and enough leeway that it's actually useful to use your systems for whatever they are intended to. I think, I think it'd be interesting if there was a way to have more information about how their internal processes work. Because if... Um, their network settings were abstracted in some kind of configuration management system or something like that. I mean, I would hope that there's a code review process before something goes to production. That might already be the case and maybe it just didn't get caught because just by having code review doesn't mean you you can't have a problem. It just means you're a certain percentage likely to. But um, that's kind of how it goes with most companies. Or at least that's how it's supposed to be. The other thing is um, having a disaster recovery plan is great. But if you don't test it, um, I'm not saying they didn't. I don't know. Maybe they tested it and they didn't account for BGP. But, um, you know, this is part of that in my mind, which is easy for me to say from the outside looking in. It's like, okay, you have a disaster recovery plan. Let's practice this or find a way to make sure that we've thought of these things because a disaster recovery plan is no good if you can't even get someone in the building or someone yeah. connected to the systems to try to restore things. If you can get the right people with the right access credentials in the right place when you need them, then your disaster recovery plan needs some work. A positive side of this is I bet you that most companies after this happen are now including BGP issues on their recovery plan. I'm sure they are. 
But I think especially the large companies started to to look at this differently after this happened. Oh yeah, for sure. I think that one issue here is that while that's true, I, I think that's right. You know, BGP will be a part of that now, especially now. But it's always the thing that's not in your recovery plan that gets you because okay, BGP won't be the problem, but um, maybe a company doesn't take uh, RAID seriously, or maybe it's their serious. monitoring system isn't monitoring RAID, so they didn't get any errors, so they assume everything is fine, just to realize that Nagios has been down for six months and they weren't getting any <laughs> alert and when the first disk failed and then the second one goes and um, all these different things. So, you know, I, th I think context is key when it comes to security, and that's where um, I think a lot of people miss this because... There's this mindset, and we'll kind of get into this because I think it segues into the main topic, where I call it security by numbers, where someone is implementing security in their system just because the article told them to do these things, so they're going to do these things. They may not understand why they're doing these things, but the article said to do it, and they're probably not bad things. Like um, Commonly, like they'll say, have a randomly generated password, don't allow open SSH to the public, you know, uh, public key authentication, and, and many more. Those are good things to do, but when you get down into the weeds, though, and you're just doing everything because a document says to do it, um, you lack the context. And sometimes a good security practice can work against you. Um, for example, I worked at a company um, a, a while back where they had a, I can't remember what the password policy was, is 30 or 60 days or something. They, they had to change their password. Um, and everybody was just um, writing down passwords on post-it notes because when I would go around to fix computers, I would see the post-it note had a password. And of course, there'd be a number at the end and they're just going to increment the number. So having this password change policy, which they think makes security better, is actually working against them because it's just making password hygiene lower. So people, I, I think the takeaway is to think about both, as many avenues here as you possibly can. Um, doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but... Um, just because the document says this is going to help you, will it? Maybe it might help you, but it might work against you too. So it's important to understand why you're doing the thing so you can understand if it really helps you or hurts you in the long run. Yeah. At the very least, look for more than one source. Don't just trust to, I don't know, some randos on the on YouTube telling you to do things this way or that. Actually, find the documentation behind it. There are reasons to do things uh, one way yeah. or not another. Try to look those up. Try to understand the actual problem behind that we are trying to solve or that we are trying to warn against and see for your specific case what we are saying actually matters and is actually yep. useful. It may not be. You may be on an air-gapped system that you don't even need to have the, those password requirements, for example, because it will never be connected to anything else and it has physical restricted access or something like that. Yep. Yep, like uh, so many companies have that old system that's not on the, of the network at all and is in a locked room with a line printer because it's the only thing that could connect to a line printer. And they sneaker net with, with some kind of disk to, to print to it. Um, all kinds of fun things out there. I would just like to, to say something before we move on to the, yeah. to the main topic related to the, the BGP incident. Mm -hmm. um, this issue with Facebook, it raised awareness to something slightly different, which is called BGP hijacking. This is a type of attack. Um, the way BGP works, in this example of uh, Alice and Bob and whatever that I mentioned before, no one, BGP by itself has no provision in it to make sure that one router does not lie. You can program your router to say that it advertises one route even if it doesn't. Okay, so now I answer for 
Google's IP addresses. And I'm abstracting some other issues that uh, have arisen, arisen in the meantime that actually work to solve that. But most of the time, a router can say that it advertises an IP block that it doesn't. Okay, And it will restart receiving the traffic for that IP block for all the routers that talk to it. Do you know how to reach uh, Daniel to hand it this package? Sure I do. Hand it to me and I'll pass it over and then I'll keep it. And there I can do all kinds of things with it. I can redirect it to a server that I have that responds on the same address of the server that I want to attack. I already received the network traffic, so I'll now fake the, the website. And I can trick a user into providing his credentials or whatever to my server rather than the destination that they want. Yeah, or even just actually send the message to her and um, but, example, but, but make, keep a copy of it before sending it over, like just totally being a man in the middle. Um, traffic goes to the destination it's supposed to go to, but it just yeah. goes somewhere over here first. This yeah. isn't something very hypothetical here. This has already happened. Late last year, I believe, a very big part of Facebook and Google and Amazon's traffic started to be routed through China. They were working with uh, with uh, IP providers from China who handed the, the IP ranges for those countries and they assigned it to their own companies, the usual stuff. But then somewhere, some, somehow, a router started to advertise those IP blocks inside of China and the traffic was redirected there. And that lasted minutes or hours or whatever, I can't recall the exact amount of time. And that's a very big issue. I won't get into the political side of it, I'm not interested in that. But right. If one um, autonomous system, which is the name to one of these routers. An entity is called an autonomous system. It might have more than one block or whatever. I won't go into the details, but you can advertise blocks that are not yours. They are starting to work around this with uh, encryption and making sure that the routers that advertise a specific block are actually authorized to do that. But fundamentally, the protocol did not include these provisions. So. It could happen that, and again, it has already happened, some countries lose access to Facebook. It happened earlier this year, not in this incident, in a separate incident. A few countries in Europe stopped having access to Facebook for about half an hour because someone at uh, one of these, uh, I believe it was an internet exchange in Switzerland, started to announce those routes in a different uh, router. So the traffic never reached Facebook. Those countries were effectively locked out of Facebook. And this is a, a very tricky problem because the protocol itself does not have the provisions to prevent this. Everything that we are doing to fix this at the protocol level involves bolting on security to something that already exists. So at the end, you're going to have this Frankenstein master of a protocol that has security and has this and has that and has the other, but fundamentally did not have them at the start and was not designed with those in mind. This is not specific to BGP. We were talking before before we started recording. That's why mm -hmm. you have the S tacked on on HTTP, HTTPS, because at some point we realized that HTTP was plain text and we needed to encrypt that, so we bolted on security to it. And we created HTTPS. We noticed that FTP was plain text, so we bolted FTPS and we created FTP secure. SFTP mm -hmm. is a different beast. We did that with POP. It's pop s. It works on a different port. It's basically the same commands as pop, but now it's encrypted. It's encrypted with with TLS. And from the get go, all of the the network protocols, all of the communication protocols that the internet is based on, they were not designed with security in mind. It was not an right. issue when the internet was designed and these protocols was started to to be created. 
This has always been tacked on. And this is one of the root causes of the vast amount of issues that we've been having with security and encryption and information being stolen and all that, because it was not designed to be secured from the get-go. That's right. why that's why initiatives like HT, like the Internet slash two and stuff like that, because they are designing the the whole infrastructure from the get-go with security in mind, because everybody realizes today that security has to be there, and it's different when you just bolt it on than from when you actually design everything from the get-go to be secure. So that's just something that I thought that we should actually mention before we move on to the main topic. Yeah, I appreciate that. I find myself just wondering how any of this works at all, because the more you learn about, you know, errors, <laughs> how does this work at all? It's just like something that wants to fall over. TCP IP in general just wants to crash. It wants to fall over. And we're forcing it to, to stay up and to do things that it wasn't intended to do, like you said. And um, it, it's like, one of these days, I hate to say that we're just going to have internet Armageddon where nothing works anywhere, <laughs> and um, that's going to really wake some people up, and, and they're going to realize just how not great this really is. Yeah. And we had the first test with Facebook down for six hours, and Telegram got 70, new, 70 million new users just during that, uh, that outage. Wow. So you can see how, how important this is. I bet they enjoy that. At least I hope they do, unless their <laughs> servers are overwhelmed. <laughs> Which they might have been, yeah. 70 million new users in six hours. That's something. Yeah, situations in, in the world just make things more popular, like Zoom's rise to fame in the pandemic, and then now Telegram becoming more popular. Um, because if it wasn't for, I mean, some people might feel like they need to send an actual telegram because what <laughs> like that to send a telegram to, uh, you know, if you could even still do that nowadays. Um, yeah. Wow. So yeah, that was Facebook and that was a very interesting situation to put it lightly. I, I hope, um, the anxiety levels of everyone inside it, you know, of mm -hmm. Facebook that had to deal with this is back to normal, that they got some comp time, some time off or something. Um, yeah. And hopefully some lessons were learned that will help this not happen again. Yeah. So one top, so the topic for today's episode is secure images, but this is kind of a thing that you, depending on context, it might not be an image. These might just be um, better defaults for enhancing security from the onset and could also be used for containers as well, virtual machines. So um, the context can change a little bit here. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that, you know, you're going to have some things that, you know, minimum security. So I don't want to say best practice. I'll say minimum practice. Maybe that's a better way to put it. The absolute minimum that you should be doing. And having that be built into your deployment or provisioning system, I'm going to use images as an example, but again, you probably have some servers that are already running that you might wanna go back and, and maybe execute some of these on. Um, if a image has these minimum defaults in it, and then you use that image to you know spin up servers, then those servers are starting off more secure than they would normally from the vendor's distribution because Distributions, they don't know what your context and use case is. They give you, you know, the distribution. Um, it's not going to be perfect in ever in any single way because Linux is what Linux is. You customize it to make it what you want it to be to fit, to fit your use case. And um, 
sometimes a use case in a distribution, for example, a package being installed that you have no use for. While it's probably a, a good thing to have installed for many people, it might not be a good thing for you because you're not using it. So um, a lot of these distributions, most in fact, are generalized for multiple different purposes. You have enterprise distributions that also work well on laptops, for example. Um, they can be work, they can work on anything. So um, when it comes to images, you could use the word the uh, template if it's a virtual machine or a container, it means pretty much the same thing. You could be old school, you could have a um, image server like a Clonezilla server, for example, that has an image on there and things boot off a uh, pixie boot, pull the image down when you want to set, set up a machine. So what should you do with that image for minimum default security? And I've come up with a few things, but I don't want to imply that this is an exhaustive list. And I don't want anyone to look at this list and say, well, that's all I need to do. No, um, I'm going to use the word minimum over and over again, because this is absolutely minimum. You should absolutely read and do more and research yourself. And also, you know, feel free to disagree with me because, you know, that's what security is. It's a conversation, not a rule. Yeah. So what the first thing I'm going to mention, which this is actually not specific to an image, but it's just a best practice. I might have mentioned this before, but my mindset is that nothing is publicly accessible. Nothing is in production until it's been vetted as much as possible for, from a security standpoint. Now, with an imaging system, you could have a VLAN that is dedicated for that purpose. So if you spin up a machine, and it's connected to that VLAN, that specific subnet. And perhaps that subnet doesn't have a route to the internet. It's just a self-contained thing. So you can go in there, you can adjust the settings, do whatever you need to do. And then when, um, depending on your approval process, then it can graduate to production once um, you know, you've vetted it. And that's a great way to do it because I get nervous when I see people like spin things up and make them publicly available from the beginning, right before yeah. they even run updates for the first time. And you'd be surprised how common that actually is. Yeah. And if you happen to need to pull something from the internet on the deployment process at that point, you might use an internal proxy that you have set up. So that, that's the only point, the point of contact between that VLAN and the internet. And if the machine actually needs to pull something from the internet, just point it to the proxy and use the proxy to get out so that nobody can get from the outside to it before you want it to. And another thing that uh, people can consider, this wasn't originally on my list, but if you use a specific distribution a lot, you can actually set up an internal mirror for getting it started with packages. I'm assuming you're taking responsibility of keeping that mirror up to date because um, if you don't update it, but every month, then it's missing important security updates. But if you're doing a good job of running your own repository, then it could maybe could access that and no, nothing past that. So at least you can install packages and things like that. Um, it will save you on bandwidth. Yep. Yep, it sure will. And and people will run their own NTP server for the same reason internally because then it's not they're not flooding. You know they have. 10,000 machines in their, uh, you know, in their infrastructure, 10,000 machines that are syncing with NTP. That's a big amount of load. But if only one server of yours goes out to the internet, even better. So I think that's just a best practice overall. There I said it. I was trying to avoid <laughs> that word the whole time, and I used it again. Um, I'm training myself. That's a good default to, to follow is to just never make anything publicly available if you can help it. But if you have to, just, just keep it segregated for a while until you feel reasonably confident. Now, when you're running, when you're creating an image, you generally will have a sample server 
a throwaway server, maybe just like a virtual machine or something that you're staging for this. When you're creating an image, you should definitely make sure that server can't reach the internet because um, you don't want something to get into the server and just stay resident in the background, like a logic bomb or something like that that could just you know come up later, maybe months down the road. You think everything's fine, but then every server um, has that. Um, so anyway, you're, you're working with a server, a temporary server. I've seen people use a VirtualBox VM for this or maybe a VM in their stack or maybe a, a spare server. And you look at it and you look at things that are running things that are installed, and this is the first one. Um, look at what's installed and look at the open port. One way, one way that you could do this is to, um, so one of, the way, one of the ways that you could do this is to just run like the netstat command. I forgot what the new one is, because technically distributions don't really ship with netstat anymore, but um, you're looking for open ports. A lot of distributions will include things that are helpful to a lot of people, like I mentioned, but may not be may not be relevant to you. So, for example, if it has like an email service that is um, listening for connections on any IP, that's a bad thing if you have no use for that. So get rid of it. Just uninstall it. Make sure it's disabled at the very least. And then you look at the running services or, excuse me, the, the ports that are open and just eliminate anything that you don't absolutely need. And then also look at the list of installed packages too. Um, obviously, there's, there could be thousands of packages on a Linux distro installed by default. You're not going to know like all of those. You could Google them, but if you know for sure that something isn't needed, then just get rid of it. Uh, worst case scenario, you could create a snapshot of the VM and just uh, uninstall a bunch of things and something breaks, just, uh, just roll it back. But the idea is to make your threat surface as small as possible. So the fewer packages and the fewer open ports the, the better because there's fewer things that could be used against you if you have only the required things there. So that or would be the first thing to look at. Or if you want to, to go the other way around, just start with the minimal package and start adding what you actually need. Usually yep. the, the minimal packages for any given distro will have much, much less crap added on top. Yep. So you won't need to, to remove stuff that you'll have to look up to see if you, if you need it or not. Just start with the absolute bare minimum and then start adding the the actual packages that you need. They'll pull the all the dependencies in, don't worry. Your package manager will deal with that. Yep. But if you're the only thing you're going to use that server for is to serve web pages and you want to use Apache or Nginx or something like that, just deploy the minimal and then pull either one of those. Yep, absolutely. And um, normally what I would do for Ubuntu users is recommend um, Ubuntu minimal. But the reason why I have some hesitation with that is because they, I don't think it's going to exist too much longer because they hide it. It's so hard to find. I can't remember how long it took me to find a minimal image for 2004 when 2004 came out. Beforehand, it was super easy to find. And, and the minimal Ubuntu image was like 50 megabytes. It was super tiny. And a lot of people will think, well, they'll just install Ubuntu server which is also minimal. It's not really all that minimal. Um, it is minimal. I mean, there's no desktop environment, but there's a lot of things in there that you may not want. But the Ubuntu minimal, the actual Ubuntu minimal that did exist and to some extent still does, um, it's super small. Like it's not going to have um, barely anything but apt on there, which is actually what you want if you can get that, depending on your distro. Absolutely. Yeah. If you want just to start fresh, just go with minimal if you can find it, like you say. So another thing that I'm going to bring up is, and this is very specific to Debian and Ubuntu though, so this isn't gonna be for everyone. 
Um, and this isn't really a security thing. This is, it, it kind of is, but it, it's more or less not. It's the machine ID, which um, is really interesting because the symptom of this is that you have, let's just say you create a virtual machine image or template and you create 10 VMs from it. And then every VM gets the same IP address, but you look at the Mac address and they're different for each one, which usually that's all that's required because when your VM or machine wants an IP address, it tells your server, your, your router, firewall, whatever, you know, here's my MAC address, please give me an IP. Now, with the machine ID, I, I don't remember what the logic was in designing it this way, and, and very few distros do this. They present the machine ID instead of the MAC, MAC address. And um, what that means is that if you, if you don't clear that properly in the image, then every single machine is going to come up with the same machine ID, which means the DHCP server is going to think the same um, server is asking for an IP each time. And, and meanwhile, you have these servers that are fighting for the IP. Um, Debian and Ubuntu do this now. Um, just keep that in mind if you are using those distros. And it, it's very specific. You can't, from my experience, delete the machine ID file. If you do, it just won't work. But you can actually empty it. Like, keep the file there, but just delete the contents of it. And then when it comes up, it should regenerate that. Um, that's just something I'm mentioning just to kind of save people frustration. Uh, and with this, we've mentioned the Holy Trinity on this episode. We've gone to PGP, DNS, and now DHCP. Those three are the culprits for all the, the evils in the world. Yeah. Um, aside from that, what you just mentioned is also pretty common on the other side of the fence on Windows systems. When you're preparing images for deployment and you forget to do the sysprep sync, sysprep will clear the, the ID of the deployed system. If you don't run it, all the systems will have the same one and you're going to have issues with Active Directory. And that was the whole yeah. aside for Windows on this episode. We won't bother you more with it. Yeah, I can confirm that too. I've, I've, been, uh, I've been down that road. I learned that the hard way. I think that's something that most administrators learn the hard way, unfortunately, unfortunately but growing pains. Um, the next thing is almost like a topic in and of itself, so I'm going to try to keep it short. I have videos on this subject, um, which is OpenSSH. Now, there's some best... Okay, I almost said it. I stopped myself. Um, okay, there's some minimal default practices with OpenSSH you should absolutely always do, uh, one of which is to disable password authentication and use only public key authentication, also disable root access, you could change the port for SSH, but it doesn't really add much to security. It's actually probably 1% or less than 1% value, but um, it's so easy to do because it's just one line of config and everybody's expecting SSH to be on port yeah. 22. But then again, I don't want to over, like, you know, exaggerate the value of this. It's very minimal because anyone who wants to know what port SSH is running on, if it's targeted, they'll find it in less than a minute, yeah. no matter what you do. But this it's just easy to do. Uh, it's actually something that I always do uh, myself. Uh, obfuscation is not security. You just hide changing the, the, the service port slightly. It will be found if someone actually tries to look at it. The yeah. thing is that it will avoid all the, the random noise from the internet. The, the scans that are always running, they will be targeted at, port, uh, at the SSH port, the regular one. So if you move it out of the way, you will at least avoid most of those scans. Targeted attacks are something different, but it, at least you'll avoid some of the noise that you'll eventually have if you leave it on the default port. That, that's a good point, too, because um, the, one of the biggest values there is that your log files will be shorter. Because 
there's bots and all kinds of scanners and things going out looking for port 22. And if they don't find it, then the automated processes will just move on to another server. So you'll probably still see things try to get into your server and you'll see port scans or whatnot. But um, you just won't see as many, like you said, the noise. That's what you're avoiding. Absolutely. Part of this, and this isn't, well, it is security. Again, it is, but it's not. It's, well, I'm going to have to say this is because SSH host keys are um, key to the security of how it works. Um, But if you don't, uh, handle that properly, then every server will have the same SSH host key. So every server you log into will say, um, I forgot what the verbiage is, but something like there's a problem with this um, host key, can't be mm-hmm. trusted. And you'll get this big nag screen up there. And the reason why that happens a lot is because a lot of people, especially when they're starting out, they don't know that the host keys on the server is what um, causes that. And if you don't clear those in the image, then um, every server has the same. But the problem is you can't just delete the host keys and then take an image because then SSH won't start as soon as you restore the image, which is a problem. There's there's different ways of dealing with this. Um, you could create a system D unit that will, um, you enable it, it disables itself, but it does it runs the commands to reset the host keys. You could use cloud in it, which does the same thing. There's other ways of doing it too. Um, I'm probably gonna have a video dedicated about it at some point. But essentially, you just have to make sure that the host keys regenerate when the image is when when a server is created from the image, mm-hmm. and it's kind of confusing for someone starting out. But um, I think if you there, there's some good documentation out there for how to do it. Um, and I, again, I have videos on my channel that'll cover it plus more. So I'm not going to spend too much time on that. But it's definitely something that you need to um, take into consideration. Yeah, and if you're preparing the books for Ansible or something like that, there are ways to, to automate that through through the automation tools. Mm-hmm. Almost all of them have ways to deal with, uh, with those type of issues. Yep, absolutely. Now, another thing is the concept of updates, which I don't want to put too much confidence in. It's, again, minimum. You should always have your patches installed. doesn't 100% protect you, but it's a good starting point. And there's automatic updates, I think, that should be the case. Um, And each, I think every distro that I'm aware of has a way to do this. Like Ubuntu has unattended upgrades, for example. You can configure this and tell it how often to check for updates, automatically install updates from which repositories will install those updates. Um, What I like to do is to make sure that when an image is, or a service created from an image, that it part of its provisioning is to update when it first comes online. Because obviously you want to have all the updates in your base image from the get-go, but as soon as that image is a few days old, there's probably already new packages anyway, so you're not going to really want to keep remastering the image every other day just to keep up with that. You should, I mean, you should still, you know, re- recreate the image every now and then, but, you know, Ansible and other tools like that, um, provision scripts, unattended upgrades exist, you can set that up. But setting up unattended upgrades in the image will ensure that it's, um, after it's you know spun up, it'll always download the updates automatically, which is a minimum thing you want. Um, several distributions have um, live patching available, and there's other services, you know, shameless plug aside, that offer that kind of thing, but it's relevant to this. Um, look into that. That's definitely something that's recommended, but at the very least, if you install the unattended upgrades package in Ubuntu and Debian, um, I, I can't remember. Do you remember what CentOS calls theirs? I thought they had one too in uh, Relis in addition. They have, I can recall the name from the top of my head. They yeah, have they something. Have, yeah, they, they do, yeah. yeah. 
They have um, something they, around the M and the NF. I can't. Uh, yeah. I really cannot recall the name from the top of my head. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, sometimes including the um, live patching services into your image can be a little difficult because you're dealing with license keys at this point, and um, that's beyond the scope of our discussion today to talk about. Um, there's configuration management and things that you can use to do better deal with those types of things, but at least have the update thing figured out. And if nothing else, unattended upgrades or whatever your distro calls it, plus when it comes up, have a task that starts at boot that's going to, you know, in some form or fashion, is going to just make sure it has the most current updates from the get-go. Yeah, and regarding the live, uh, the live patching, if you're deploying your system, say with Ansible or something like that, uh, we have information on how to integrate Texcare's live patch uh, kernel care into that, and it's completely automated from the get-go as well. It's probably a similar method, if I had to guess, um, how I do other things that have a license key where I have a variable. And in configuration management, that's the only thing that's there is this placeholder. And then mm -hmm. depending on the server, that variable gets made into its actual license key. So it's able to be automated. And that seems to be a common way to do it. Yeah. Um, it it's definitely a great thing to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So... Now, one thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit, and this is kind of a gray area, but um, having a, I'll call it like a bootstrap user, a provision user, basically a user that's only there long enough to, um, you know, just get the initial configuration management going. Um, root can be used for this because you could have an automated process that root kicks off, that pulls down things, or you could have a user that's created in some distros that's why this is hard for me to give a general rule. They automatically create a user with a UID of 1,000. Generally speaking, a UID of under 1,000 is a system user, and then 1,000 and higher is a you know standard user, which is why when you create a Linux installation, you'll see like 20, 30 accounts in Etsy password. We were just talking about this before we hit the record button, but you only see your user account. If you have a graphical login manager, you only see your user account. And the reason for that is because login managers only generally look at UIDs 1000 and above. Now, Ubuntu, for example, they, by default, with their cloud images, will give you a, a user called Ubuntu with a UID of 1000. And we were discussing before the show started, that could be a problem with containers if, or other things that might want to use that same UID or um, something like that. The best way that I've found to deal with this is to either use root or a provision user, either one, um, initially. But part of the configuration management process should be to either remove the user account that's baked into the image, just kill it, or if it's using root, lock down root as part of the process. So regardless of what you're using, that it's only there long enough to bootstrap the initial configuration management process, um, because the last thing you want is a you know admin user that's on every single system, and if the password leaks, then every system could be compromised. Plus, you have to remaster the image again, which is not something that you want to do. Yeah. The the password or the the SSH keys. Yeah, it will suffer the same problem if you deploy the the public keys for that somewhere and it gets compromised somehow. Yeah, you're going to have lots of places you need to change it. So yep. be aware that deploying that with the image, you should do it. Uh, you should use the, the public key authentication rather than password. 
But yep. uh, again, be aware, you really need to protect that private key. You should not let that uh, get stolen anyway. You shouldn't have that stored somewhere else just in case and lose the, that access again. Um, yeah, there are lots of different ways to approach this. Like we said before, we might tell you that these things are the minimal and that these things are best practices, and I'm using the, the air quotes here. Um, but again, for every specific situation, for every specific environment, for your own inf infrastructure, you should make sure that it actually meets your needs. Not just because we say so, but because you're actually going to, to get value from using it this way. It's actually going to be more secure. If you don't have a way to protect the private key that's, that's actually secured then, and you let it leak, well, you might as well have a used password. It's a, just a secure then. That's so true. That's such a great point too. I think what I what I notice, it's almost like when when you have an IT shop, if they're new, like they just you know like an entrepreneur just starting out, there's certain practices that they fall into. They learn as they go and they do it differently. One one growing pain is that I've seen a lot of companies will build in they'll, they'll build in all the user accounts for their IT team into the image, which is great from the standpoint that every admin can log in to the image immediately, but it's they realize how not great that is when one of their team members maybe moves on to a different position in the company or maybe they resign altogether. And now, you know, their image has a user account that's for a individual that no longer works for the company. So they have to go in and now remove that user account. And if any one of their SSH keys, just like what you were saying to your point, if any one of those keys, if you're building those in, and I've seen many people do this, gets compromised, then you have to remaster the image to get that key out of there on top of um, doing something in automation to purge that key from every single server that might have it. So my mindset became, as I learned early on, and I think other people come to the same conclusion, that you handle the user accounts, you know, you could, use, you could handle it in LDAP, for example, yeah, or centralized. centralized, or if you have like configuration management, you could have that create the user accounts. Just don't put them in the image because I think you'll find that you're creating more work for yourself and it's actually less secure that way. So you want the user accounts to come to the server so that way you don't have to go back and remaster the image. You still will have to remaster the image every now and then. Every few months or so, it makes sense to build in more updates um, or whatever you want to do. But this is just housekeeping that I just think is a waste of time in my opinion. Yeah, rather than including those in the image, just let the image be configured to join the domain as soon as it's spun up or yep. connect to the identity provider of choice that you have. And this way you won't have you won't have to configure accounts on each individual system and you have a way to delete accounts if that's the case that you mentioned before. Somebody leaving the company, just uh, turn it off or disable it or delete the account from the centralized system and it will immediately affect all the systems that pull from it. Yep. In, a, in the enterprise, this is the, the best approach, again, best mm -hmm. practice. But this is the, the best way to deal with um, with user accounts. You don't have local accounts on each system. That's that's a nightmare to maintain. You have a centralized identity identity management system, and that's where you do all of these things. Yeah. Another thing that I'm going to recommend is um, learning cloud in it. Now, I'm not saying you have to be an expert in it, but the reason why I bring up cloud in it is because uh, many of the things that I mentioned can actually be automated in a cloud in it config file. 
And um, Cloudinit was created for cloud providers generally to um, be able to do things like, you know, reset the SSH host keys and um, create a default user and maybe run some scripts, have some uh, packages installed by default. There's all kinds of things that Cloudinit can do. But what I think a lot of people don't realize is that there's value with Cloudinit outside of cloud too. Um, you can use it on a physical server, a virtual machine doesn't matter. Um, and inside the Cloudinit config file, you could tell it to reset the host keys immediately when it comes up. So that way you don't have to worry about that. I'm pretty sure there's a way to reset the machine ID in there too, but I don't remember off the top of my head. You could also tell it to not create the default user account. So if you're running Ubuntu, for example, it's creating an Ubuntu user, you could just tell it not to do that. You could literally just remove the setting that tells it to create a default user. And, and inside the cloud init config, you could have it run the bootstrap command for your automation system right inside of it. So that way, immediately when it comes up, you could tell it in, also in CloudInit to install all the updates. So it's going to install all the updates. It's going to run the first um, provision from your configuration management solution. Make sure that that default user account is killed out of it. Um, so a lot of the things that I mentioned, uh, most if not all of it, you can actually do in CloudInit. And CloudInit, I find, especially when I did the video on it, the documentation was hard to find. I mean, it there is documentation, don't get me wrong, and they have some good documentation there, but there's... I found there's a lot of missing pieces with how to use it outside of cloud environments. For example, how it gets the parameters for the user account via a web console, which confuses a lot of people at first. But if you stick to it, I I, I feel like people will find that CloudInit has some amazing value for making some of these minimum practices the case. Yeah, and there are other tools as well. If you don't want to go with CloudInit, there are multiple tools out there. Terraform, for example, yep. we've already mentioned Ansible, Chef, Puppet, all of these automation tools, they can deploy a system for you quickly following a strict set of instructions. And you can yep. include any, basically any command that you want to run. As long as it's uh, able to be written in Bash or something like that, you can just add it there as a script that you want to run at, after deployment, and it will run it. So there are multiple ways to, to get to these goals that we are describing here. We're oh, yeah. not just pointing out one way and this is the way that you need to do it. No, there are multiple ways. This that's a very, very key takeaway here. There are multiple this ways. Isn't, um, this isn't yeah. the Mandalorian. This is not the way. Yeah, I think the best way to describe what we're doing in this episode is getting the conversation started that you should have with your IT team and have a discussion about this. Um, and obviously, feel free to disagree with us, too. That's part of the fun of this Um have that conversation. We should do. Uh, we should have a default image, and and these are the things that are important to our company security. We need to take that into consideration. Absolutely. Um, so, when it comes to cloud init, right? That that's not the only solution, but it is one, and definitely something to consider. Um, there's all kinds of tools out there, and it's impossible to mention everything in one podcast that you might be able to do. Um, I feel like it's also a mix of trying to make it a bit, you know, add some convenience, but also you're adding some default security as well. And as you learn, you're going to find yourself like remastering the image because you're, you're like, I didn't think of this. Oh, gosh, I'm going to just go put that in the image because that's a brilliant idea. That's going to definitely help us. And um one thing to mention too, because you mentioned Terraform and, and such, um, I think there's another tool that it doesn't seem to get as much love, in my opinion, and that's Packer. I love Packer. Um, if I remember correctly, it's made by the same company that made Ter 
was it um it was made by HashiCorp, if I remember correctly. So um anyway, what Packer can do is it can hook into the cloud providers and also non-cloud providers, and you could actually automate the creation of your image with it. And the beauty of this is that it, it fits together with the other automation tools because if you're using Terraform to spin up infrastructure, then Terraform can deploy an image that you created with Packer. So at this point, we're getting into full infrastructure as code mode. You could automate the image that you're creating with the default security and also automate that image becoming a server. And then the configuration management solution takes that server that Terraform created from the image that Packer created and keeps it up to date with all the things that it needs. And then ultimately, you can kind of see the beauty of DevOps and how these things, um, you know, how they fit together. And I guess we have the topic for the next podcast. I think we have, <laughs> you know, how many topics now for, for the podcast? I, I could probably guess <laughs> about three off of this. Um, there's definitely a lot of things that we could dive into here for sure. Yeah. Regarding infrastructure, like looking at infrastructure like this, when you're, it's just a matter of text files uh, specifying what you actually want and then just pointing it, okay, here are the servers, now do what I want. And letting it perform all those instructions that you told him to, it, it's almost like magic. If you look back at how things were done 15 years ago, 20 years ago, where you had to go by hand deploying the ISO file to each of the servers and going through the installation, and everything was by hand. You had to make all the selections. And the installers were much more complex because you had to define drivers and you had to define yep. the, the actual disk layouts and create your LVMs by hand and all that. Now everything gets abstracted away. It's another layer that you, that hides these things away. And you just need to work with text file configurations. OK, I need the machine that has these and these installed. Now these are the servers. Deploy there, install that, and let me know when you're done. And then you come back 20 minutes later and you have your systems ready. And it's completely different. It really you. is. Like, I think you could appreciate this next comment I'm, I'm about to make. I kind of feel like um, people nowadays in, in a lot of ways have it easier because, I mean, when I first started, it was very common to have a network share. And inside this network share, it only included hardware drivers inside this network share. So when you're installing an operating system, it's like you or for your workstations and your servers, you might have a power edge of this model and an optiplex of that model. So inside the share, you have an optiplex directory, then a, the model number and the power edge directory, whatever your, your manufacturers are. And then you have all the drivers that it could possibly need in there. You point it to the share and then you run into this classic race condition. Oh, the network card isn't supported by default. So how exactly do I connect to this <laughs> network share that has the drivers that the drivers, the network card so needs are in the network share? And then you find yourself putting some things on a flash drive. And then even worse, I remember at one point um, recreating ISO images for operating systems to build in some of this stuff, which was so time consuming to make your own OS media. Um, and nowadays it's like, man, it's so much better now. Or the HP ProLiance that you had to boot to, from BIOS and then the BIOS would actually boot the Linux installation that you wanted and not to include the drivers itself. Yep. Yeah, and um, I ran into that. This, and I actually, it's funny, I ran into this problem yesterday of all days, and I haven't run into this in many years, where I was going to restore an image to, this time it was a desktop, and the um, 
the, the imaging solution can't see the network card. So there's no way to actually use the imaging solution to restore the image, which is on the network. I literally had to copy it to a flash drive and sneaker net it to the machine and do it that way. Um, sometimes you still run into these things, but not nearly as often as you used to. Absolutely. Both hardware is more standardized and the distributions include much more drivers than they used to. Sure do. So I know I'm forgetting some very common things here, um, but that's the whole point. We're, this isn't an exhaustive final list here, so it's okay that we're missing things. But one, another thing you might want to include if you don't have like central, hold on. Sorry, allergies. Um, anyway, um, if you don't have centralized login, like I think you really should, um, I forgot the name, Is it was it CrackLib in PAM that does the um, default password strength um, requirement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if your company has policies where you have to retain data for a certain amount of time or you have to have certain password requirements set, it's probably a good idea to put those in image too. So that way you're compliant with policies from the get-go. Um, obviously, again, I, I like centralized login for this, but you may not have that, but companies should have policies for these things. And I feel like if they, if your company doesn't have policies for data retention, um, that's a liability, not just for the, the security of the data, but your local government might require you in your line of work to have certain retention and you're not in compliance from a legal standpoint. So if your company doesn't have policies at all, then my question then is, well, does your area have legal requirements? Because if it does, you might not be in compliance with those. Either way, um, have the conversation about policies, which is probably another topic we need to get into. But if you do have these policies, you should, if you can, and if it's applicable, make those the default in the image. That way, people are in compliance with those policies right from the get-go. If you have a legal department in your enterprise, uh, you should really have a talk with them to find out what retention you should have and what policies need to be enforced to comply with yeah. the local regulations. And if you don't have a legal department, then you should get uh, you should get some outside help and some outside consultation on this because this is really important. Right. And if you run afoul of this, it can incur heavy penalties. Yeah. I don't know criminal liability; it depends on the the local the local legislation. But uh, heavy fines are sure to be to be your way if you don't comply. Absolutely. And the final part I'm going to say about that is when it comes to data retention is understand the shelf life of the media that you're keeping that onto. So if you have a retention policy where you're keeping things for five years, but the media that you're saving it onto doesn't last five years, like um, optical media, I thought the average was like 17 months, surprisingly. Hard drives, like spinning rust hard drives, need to be powered on. I thought I read once a year, they start to lose data, believe it or not. If you don't, if they have no electricity going in them for more than a year or maybe up to a year, then that's a problem. Whereas flash storage obviously is better and you have tape storage, all kinds of different um, defaults uh, when it comes to, or not defaults, but when it comes to shelf life, where you could be in compliance or so you think, but then when they need when you need to pull data, oh yeah, I can't read any of the data. <laughs> That's not a fun time to to be in for sure. So understand the shelf life of the media that you're keeping things onto as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's something that will bite you. And it usually happens at the worst possible moment when you actually need to get something from the, the media. 
is when you find out that, oh, I can no longer read this, or the device that I used to read, it no longer works, and I have no backup for that. So, yeah. Or even worse, you take the hard drive out of uh, the vault a month later, and you walk it down the stairs to the server room, and you trip, and the hard drive goes flying out of your hands and hits the wall and no longer works. So, you know, just, just be careful. Just try to, you know, have a better system because you don't want to have to figure this stuff, this stuff out at the end of, or, you know, at the last minute. Yeah. So fun times. So any other thoughts you could think of about our topic? I think I'm not going to say we covered everything because that might imply that we covered everything, but we covered a lot to at least get the conversation started. Yeah, this is just something for you to, to have the basis to work from. And if you start with this, you're on the right path, but you'll need much more, of course, and you'll need to find out the specific needs for your use case. You'll need to consider, like we said, if you don't have a centralized identity management system, you really should consider getting one, or you should look at how to deploy multiple accounts and multiple systems and keep them synchronized, for example. There are probably yep. scripts out there that will help you do this, uh, because doing that by hand is not possible. If you have more than a handful of systems, it's not possible to keep track of that by hand. Don't even try, don't bother. You'll make mistakes, you'll forget one system and you'll leave one account there that you that shouldn't be. Don't try to do that by hand. Try to automate as much as possible. Even if you don't have the, the amount of servers that are actually that that you actually justify automation with, even if you're just starting out, doing this from the start is the best way to do automation. Getting right. everything ready from the get-go, preparing the, the actual tools that you'll use, because it will be the same tools whether you're deploying for 10 systems or for a thousand. You already, yep. if you have the tools and the scripts and all that, start with those, that's the best way to go. Again, yep. not the best practice, but a really good idea. Absolutely. So this is a fun episode, and I think this alone is going to segue into a bunch of other topics that we'll definitely need to cover in future episodes, which we will do. Um, we are still every other week at this point, which may or might just be how it always is. Um, we will probably have a discussion internally about what day um, we kind of have a day right now, but it doesn't always make it up on the same day. But I think it's going to come pretty soon where it's on a specific time and it's at that time and everybody gets it right at that time, not just when I have it edited. So that schedule will be coming in an episode or two from now. And we may or may not record live. So we're, we're thinking about that too. So we got some fun things coming for this podcast. I can't wait. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening and or watching. I really appreciate it. And we'll see you back here in about two weeks. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.